Last week, um, we were introduced to the next major judge out of the book of Judges, Jephthah. And uh, we saw that he lived in um, Gilead and uh, was the illegitimate son of a harlot from that area. Um, we stated that he was, it was very possible that he never knew his father, <clears throat> for the scripture says that uh, he was born in that area. It didn't give a name or a recognition of the father. Um, it may have been his natural brothers, or as we'll read in verse 7 in a few moments, it may have been the entire town that chased Jephthah away from Gilead. Uh, in whatever condition it was, it, um, it was a humiliating experience for him. And I said last week that that humiliation would be revisited upon the people of Gilead, and we'll see that today in our study. So they have chased him away in disgrace. Uh, he went on to the area of Tob, where a group of men have surrounded him. And rather than being bitter, uh, he did different raids and uh, attacked the enemy, uh, Israel's enemy. So even though he was humiliated, he was still defending God's people uh, in his actions. But now the sons of Ammon is attacking Israel, and the leaders, uh, the elders of Gilead have now come to Jephthah uh, asking for help. And that's where we pick up our study today. And uh, so if you haven't already, turn to chapter 11 of Judges, chapter 11 and verse 4. I made a mention a couple of weeks ago that uh, I feel like I'm walking on quicksand on some of this material. Uh, I've changed my point of view after this study. Um, Again, good men on both sides of the argument have studied this, and I definitely don't want to be dogmatic about uh, uh, what I'm going to be talking about today, but uh, um, I'm sure that you uh, may have other arguments from a different point of view, so I welcome those. So verse 4, chapter 11. And it came about after a while that the sons of Ammon fought against Israel. And it happened when the sons of Ammon fought against Israel that the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come and be our chief, that we may fight against the sons of Ammon. Then Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, did you not hate me and drive me from my father's house? So why have you come to me now that you are in trouble? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, For this reason we have now returned to you, that you may go with us and fight with the sons of Ammon and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. 
So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back to fight against the sons of Ammon, and the Lord gives them up before me, will I become your head? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord is here here between us. Surely we will do according to your word. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and chief over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. The uh, elders of Gilead say here in in these verses that whoever delivers them from Ammon would become their chief. And this was according to a rule that we had mentioned in earlier lessons, and that rule was that whoever delivers them would become their ruler over them. So this is what they're asking of Jephthah to do. This vow that they're making with Jephthah, however, puts the men of Gilead in an awkward position. Uh, He was first humiliated by being run out of town, and now this is where the humiliation comes back upon the leaders of the town of Gilead. It's humiliating for them to have to offer this title to Jephthah after what they did to him. So that humiliation is... Um, upon their heads at this time. Uh, These elders had agreed uh, with the brothers who expelled Jephthah out of Gilead. Now by brothers, it could be in quotations here, it could be the natural brothers. Or if you look at verse 7 here, it implies that um, even the whole town uh, chased him from uh, the surrounding region. And that would include these elders of the town of of Gilead. So they themselves may have been uh, involved in expelling him from the area. And again, the humiliation of that um, uh, would be difficult to shoulder for them. The second problem that we see here is that their vow now put them in a position of violating the law. For Jephthah, being an illegitimate person, could not possibly become a ruler in Israel in any full or normal sense. Now keep in mind what I said last week, that both the people of Israel and Jephthah believed that um, the deliverer must be a human king. And uh, both of them are looking for that deliverer to be... um, Uh, in the form of a king to rule over them. And uh, that's all the decisions that are being made are being made on that assumption. But now, however, the people of Gilead are forced to offer a rule uh, over them by an illegitimate man. So Jephthah does indeed become a judge. Uh, God has called him to that position. He did not call him to be king. 
even in his um, illegitimate state, this is an exceptional thing, but God had called him uh, for that position. So we have here an illegitimate judge as a, uh, was really a sign to Israel of their own spiritual condition. I mentioned last week that Jephthah would be a mirror to the nation of Israel. Some of his characteristics were similar or the same as the people of Israel. And so here we have an illegitimate person dealing with an illegitimate nation who uh, went after idols, who went after false gods. Uh, they were spiritually um, separated from, from the living God that they were called to worship. So we have an ironic situation here that the best man available was really not qualified for the job. So Jephthah's faith is seen and expressed uh, here in verse 9. Uh, it says that his expression that the Lord will be their deliverer. He's saying in verse 9 that God, not Jephthah, will destroy their enemy. So we see the faith of, of Jephthah being uh, proclaimed here. Um, it's not in human hands, but it's in the one true God. Yet at the same time, he chooses to ignore the laws, excluding illegitimate people, and shows a desire to become some kind of king over the people of Israel. So we, again, we have a dichotomy here. He's admitting that the one true God is the one who's going to deliver them, but he still wants to break the law and seek after this kingdom, seek after this dynasty. Verse 11 states that the whole deal is ratified in the presence of the Lord, um, which probably means that the Ark of the Covenant of God was uh, in the, on the battlefield at Mizpah, uh, it was not uncommon for the ark to be present on battlefields. Second uh, Samuel 11:11, 11, 11, I think it's uh, Uriah who talks about the uh, ark being on the battlefield where he was at. Um, so he probably repeated this oath, repeated this promise, this deal between the leaders of Gilead and himself before the ark of the covenant. There's an uncertainty, though, throughout the story of Jephthah, uh, which I believe caused some commentators to treat him harshly, probably more harshly than he deserves. And on the other hand, this um, also has had other commentators treat him softly, probably not as harshly as he deserves. So it's a mixture here. Jephthah was a mixture. Uh, as a person, as an individual, um, as, as some of his characteristics, um, as well as the nation of Israel was a mixture. We had some people of God who were still following after uh, uh, the Lord God, their king, um, and yet you had a lot of people going after idols. You had Canaanites still living in the land. Uh, so that nation was a mixture as well. And Jephthah's actions reflected this mixture. He had a mixture of actions that 
was sometimes hard to figure out. For instance, on the one hand, he declares that the Lord God to be the true deliverer of the people, and yet he pursues some sort of kingship over Israel. It says here in these verses that he was a mighty man of valor, and yet his first attempts was a nonviolent, peaceful resolution with Ammon. So again, we see a mixture of things personality-wise, mixture of actions with this man. It's difficult to kind of figure him out. Moving on to verse 12. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the sons of Ammon, saying, What is between you and me that you have come to me to fight against my land? And the king of the sons of Ammon said to the messengers of Jephthah, Because Israel took away my land when they came up from Egypt, from the Aran as far as Jabuk and the Jordan, Therefore, return them peacefully now. The fact that Jephthah sends messengers to Ammon, I believe, is a sign of his primarily a a peaceable man. Um, Contrary to some claims by some commentators that uh, Jephthah was uh, a rash and and, uh, impulsive and violent man, Also, the fact that the message of the word of God is sent to Ammon means that Jephthah is preaching the gospel to them. Jephthah preached the word to Ammon, calling on them to repent of their actions against God's nation. The opportunity to repent is provided before judgment falls. The... um, Ladies' Bible study had studied uh, Jonah and eight words, repent, for in 40 days uh, you will be destroyed. Uh, The warning to repent comes before the judgment comes. And we see that happening here uh, in a, a similar way with Jephthah and Ammon. So Jephthah has entered into discussion and has heard Ammon's claim that Israel stole their land. And he now refused, uh, he argues or refutes this claim with a series of six arguments that he presents before Ammon. Verse 14, But Jephthah sent messengers again to the king of the sons of Ammon. And he said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the sons of Ammon. For when they came up from Egypt, and Israel went through the wilderness uh, to the Red Sea, and came to Kadesh, then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let us pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not listen. They also sent to the king of Moab, 
but he would not consent. So Israel remained at Kadesh. Then they went through the wilderness and around the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and they camped beyond the Arnon but they did not enter into the territory of Moab but the Arnon is the border of Moab. So we see here Japheth's first argument is that Israel respected the borders of the relative nations of Edom and Moab and thus by implication stating to Ammon uh, Israel had politely requested highway passage and was denied it and so they went around these nations implying that they did the same thing with the property of Ammon. Verse 19, and Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, the king of Hishbon, and Israel said to him, please let us pass through your land to our place. But Hishbon, Sion, uh, did not uh, trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people and camped in uh, Jahaz and fought with Israel. And the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sion and all his people into the hands of Israel. And they smote them. So Israel possessed all the land of the Amorites, the inhabitants of that country. So they possessed all the territory of the Amorites from the Aaron as far as Jaboki and from the wilderness as far as the Jordan. So Japheth's second argument is that Israel took the disputed territory from the Amorites, not from Ammon. You can almost uh, hear Japheth saying, uh, uh, we took it from the Amorites, not the Ammonites. Uh, you got that? You know, it wasn't your land that we took? Moreover, Israel fought and conquered this territory because Sion attacked them first. Jeff was kind of implying uh, to the sons of Ammon, um, you're attacking us now. Uh, do you want to lose your territory too? That's kind of the diplomatic implication you might read into that. Verse 23, since now the Lord, the God of Israel, drove out the Amorites from before his people Israel, are you then, are you then to possess it? So Jephthah's third argument is that it was the Lord who gave this land from the Amorites to Israel. It was God who did this. It wasn't physical um, army that did this. God went before them. <clears throat> there are two problems here. Well, first of all, let me back up here. 
verse 24. Do you not possess what Shemash, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God has uh, driven out before us, we will possess. So Jesus' fourth argument here is, um, is saying um, Ammon should stick with what uh, their false god has given them and let Israel have what our God, our Lord, has given us. Um, but I believe there's two problems that are raised here. First, um, Shemash was the god of Moab, while Moloch was the god of Ammon. So the question arises, was Japheth misinformed here as to whose god was what? And I highly doubt that. I doubt that he was misinformed. Was he being sarcastic, deliberately insulting? Possibly. Claiming one God instead of the true God that they have, the God that they worship. Were the Amorites always close to the Moabites in a temporary historical phase of worshiping uh, the Moabite God? That's very possible. The two countries were together and for a while shared uh, the worship of the same God. There's no real um, sure answer to these questions, though the third one that I said where they were closely linked together with the same gods were probably uh, uh, more likely. The second problem is to uh, determine exactly what Japheth is saying here. Uh, is <coughs> Jephthah, I'm sorry, Jephthah is saying, live and let live? Is he falling? Uh, is he failing to call Ammon to repentance? Is he putting their God on the same level as Yahweh? You have what Shemash gives you, and we have what Yahweh gives us. It certainly seems to be that if you read it that way. But again, context is, is the most important uh, thing when looking at some of these scriptures. And we have to look at the larger context here. And in order to do that, we have to go back to Numbers 21. I'm not going to have you turn there, but let me sum up what's in that chapter. In Numbers 21, we find that Sion, a king of the Amorites, had captured much of Moab and Ammon. And when Israel destroyed Sion, they liberated or freed most of Moab and Ammon. And in fact, Israel gave that land back to the original owners, gave it back to Moab and gave it back to Ammon. And we see that in Numbers 21, uh, 29 through 30. So far from capturing the Amorite territory, it was Israel who gave them their land back. Jephthah's real slap was that the false god of Shemash had been utterly powerless to defend Ammon against the king of Sion. 
It was the Lord who had defended Ammon and who had given them their land back. So far from taking the land, Israel taking their land, they actually returned the land to the kingdom of Ammon. So we could say that uh, probably uh, Jephthah's message was indeed sarcastic. If you trust in Shemush to give you land, guess how much land you will have? Zip, zero, zilch. They couldn't help you before. They're not going to help you now. But if you will take a look at history, uh, he's saying to him, you will see that the Lord God of Israel is the only true God and that he has given Israel this land. And by the same token, if you will repent and trust the Lord, he will give you land as well. And that's the implication of, of what he's arguing here. Jephthah's gospel message to Ammon, repent and believe. Verse 25. And now are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever strive with Israel, or did he ever fight against them? Jephthah's fifth argument is not so subtle. It was a reminder that uh, Israel had whipped the tar out of Moab back in the days of Balak. And would Ammon like the same treatment? And verse 26. While Israel lived in Heshbam and its villages and, and in Aor and its villages and in all the cities that are on the banks of the Aaron, 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? So Jephthah's sixth argument is that 300 years have passed since Israel allegedly stole Amorite land. And they lived in that place for centuries. So something should have been said or something should have been done prior to this encounter with them now. Verse 27, I therefore have not sinned against you, but you are doing me wrong by making war against me. May the Lord, the judge, judge today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. But the king of the sons of Ammon did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he had sent them. So Jephthah closes by affirming that he is not the judge, it is not Jephthah with whom Ammon has to deal with. They are warring against the judge, who is Yahweh, God of Israel. Jephthah's true faith, I think, is seen here, for he knows full well who the real judge of Israel is. And he shares that in... Uh, with the sons of Ammon. I think so also that this passage, that Jetha is uh, fully acquainted with the book of Numbers. 
he knew the scriptures well and again i think this is a reflection on who he is he's not an ignorant man and he's not an ignorant man living in ignorant times i think this reflects knowledge of of the scripture up to this point that has been given but ammon rejects the gospel and thus brings judgment on themselves and how often is that the case any thoughts or comments or questions up to this point Jephthah and his arguments and, and the man himself yeah Right. Sure. Right. Nothing new under the sun, is there? No, nothing new. All right. Uh, moving on then to uh, verse 29. Now the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, so that he passed through Gilead, Manasseh, and then he passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he went on to the sons of Ammon. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed give me son, the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whoever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the sons of Ammon, it shall be that the Lord's shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a whole burnt sacrifice. So Jephthah crossed over to the sons of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand, and he struck them with a very great slaughter from Aor uh, to the entrance of Meninith, 20 cities, and as far as Abel Kiramin, so the sons of Ammon were subdued before the sons of Israel. We see here that on verse 29 that the Spirit anoints Jephthah, empowering him for a special service. And then following that we see that he makes his so-called rash vow. I think uh, that the Spirit probably provokes him into this vow as a means by which God is going to nullify his um, desire to be king. He's going to use this as a means to um, uh, destroy his dream of, of a dynasty. And I believe that the vow was not rash, but I believe it was calculated. I believe he was using this vow as a means to build his kingship and build his dynasty. I think he was thinking about that. And remember I said I think those things were part of uh, uh, his plan, part of his uh, uh, choices that he makes uh, in the back of his mind that uh, Israel needs a king, a human king. 
Now, there's nothing wrong with this vow. Um, Jacob made a similar vow in Genesis 28:20 that if God would bring him back into the land of promise, that he would give God a tithe of all the earned in the strange land. This is not a bargain with God, I don't believe. Rather, I think it is a uh, confession that God is able to do the work. I mean, he's already said that God will be the judge and God will be the deliverer. And so we see here that God is able to do the work. And as a confession that man owns a debt of gratitude to God for what he does. And so I think that's probably what's in the thinking here as well. The vow makes specific and concrete <clears throat> what will be done to pay that debt of gratitude. If you help me win, then I submit to you that you are the one in control. You're the one that accomplished this, and this is what I'm going to do to say thank you for it. <clears throat> Jephthah vows to offer a whole burnt sacrifice uh, whomever comes out of the doors of his house. Yeah. I'm getting there. <laughs> next, next point. We cannot read whatever comes out as some translations uh, because the Hebrew original implies a person. And practically speaking, uh, only human beings would be in the house probably. Now, cats and dogs maybe uh, have been kept in the house. Uh, dogs were not really looked upon as, as good creatures back then. <clears throat> maybe work animals, but uh, so <clears throat> there probably wouldn't have been, uh, but there could have been cats and dogs. But these were not acceptable sacrifices. These were not animals that God said used for sacrifices. So if they came out the door, they would not be acceptable sacrifices. The sacrificial animals such as oxen, sheep, and goats uh, were not found in the house. Um, we do know that some houses they had a kind of a basement where some of the sheep might have been kept, but they wouldn't have come through the front door. Okay. <clears throat> Also, Jephthah says, come out of the doors of my house to meet me, which I believe refers to a human being as well. So would a human being be an acceptable sacrifice? Pardon me? So I'm getting there. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm trying to lay that foundation. So, <clears throat> Thus, it seems to me that uh, Jephthah expects one of his servants to meet him after the battle to help him with his spoils of war, to, to attend the pack animals, and to greet the victorious master and welcome him home. Thus, I believe he intends to dedicate that person wholly to, the God to God's service. The phrase whole burnt sacrifice, <coughs> I believe, represents the consecration of the whole person to God, wholly dedicated to him. As Paul says in Romans 12:1, I urge you to therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living 
and holy sacrifice well-pleasing to God. Jethro knew that <clears throat> knew his scriptures that we already seen, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So I believe it is inconceivable that he would offer to kill a human being in exchange for a military victory from God. Not only is this unthinkable in terms of the conscience of the believer, it is also the case that Jephthah knew that sinful man cannot be a sacrifice acceptable to a holy God. In fact, this is one of the primary reasons why there is no human sacrifices in scriptures, I believe, except for the sacrifice of the one perfect human being, the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the burnt sacrifice, in order to be acceptable, would have to also involve Levitical priests. And just as the people prevented Saul from killing Jonathan in 1 Samuel 14.45, so I believe that the priests and, and the people around would not have stood idly by to allow such an abomination as a human sacrifice to take place. And it would be an abomination, not primarily because it would be murder, but first of all, because a sinful human being is not acceptable sacrifice to the one true and living God. Rather, I think it's clear from what follows that uh, he had in mind some permanent service to God that would prevent that person from living a normal life. Exodus 38.8 says, they made the bronze basin and its bronze stand from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meetings. We see here that women did serve full time at the tabernacle. And we know from Leviticus 27 that such vows of service were possible. So in my mind, I believe that this is what Japheth was planning. We find women serving Jesus and his disciples in Matthew 27, 55 through 56. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. We also see it again in Luke 8, 2. We find women set aside on a special role to serve the New Testament church in 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 16. So the question might be asked, but why the first person who comes out of the doors of his house? And that's where I'm going to pick up next week. Any thoughts or comments or questions? Part of that, you have to go back to the original to determine that. Mm -hmm. All right.
Well, let's close in a word of prayer. We've got probably about three, four minutes here. So, uh, Brother Ken, would you close, please? So they've got about two minutes before them.